Um, and if you've never studied Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, that's the same book, just two different titles, you're in luck because we just got to the good part. <laughs> it's, it's great all the way through. But this is where the bride is really walking in full maturity. She's walking in mature devotion. She's walking in holiness. She's walking in the things that a lot of the Western church says are reserved for when you go to heaven, but she's doing it on this side of eternity, um, which is challenging and inspiring at the same time. So I'm going to read this passage, and then we can dive into these notes. This is Song of Solomon chapter 6, starting in verse 11. I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the plants of the valley, to see whether the vine had grown or the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, so that we may look at you. Why should you look at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two armies? Well, let me just do a little bit of a review and just kind of a general overview. The Song of Solomon is an allegorical song. It's literally a song. And it's also known as the Song of Songs. The first verse calls it the Song of Songs. So that's called a superlative, the ultimate superlative. So if you call Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it means he's the greatest of kings. He's king over every king. He's the greatest of lords. He's the Lord over all lords. So the Song of Songs, therefore, is the greatest song ever written. And I'm like, I don't know. Have you ever listened to Chris Stapleton? Like, he's pretty good. But Solomon, Solomon wrote over a thousand songs, and the Holy Spirit calls this one the greatest of all of them. I don't know if anyone has written a thousand songs. I know a couple people, but uh, usually people that have written a thousand songs have really good songs. Like, not all of them are great, but they have, I mean, the ratio is, is much bigger. So this is the best song that was ever written. And many people believe that this is a song that's actually going to be sung during the events of the Great Tribulation and the Book of Revelation and those things. And we're definitely going to sing this song for eternity. So this song is more than just a, uh, a lesson for married couples. I would actually argue that that's not its purpose at all. Now, a lot of scholars would disagree with me, and they would say, no, this is a good uh, book for married couples to read and, and to learn about how to love one another. But I would argue that this book, in its original writing and context, was always an allegory about God's love. It was always written with that in mind when Solomon wrote it. He was, he was thinking about his love for this Shulamite who may or may not have actually existed. This might have been, he might have loved a woman and he received revelation of God's love for him and God's love for Israel through relational love with this Shulamite maiden. But um, throughout history, this has always been known as a song that depicts God's deep love for Israel, and then through the grafting in, the church as well, the bride of Christ. 
So up to this point in the song, we, we start out at the beginning of the Song of Solomon, and the maiden is immature. She's, she's tending to other people's vineyards. She's neglecting her life in God. She feels distant from Jesus. She doesn't even feel like she knows him. She feels like she's a veiled woman before him. And he begins to woo her with his love. He begins to pursue her just as he's pursuing each and every one of us in this room. And he takes her to the point to where she's no longer fearful. She's no longer compromising. She's no longer living with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. But at this point in the song, she has come to a place of mature devotion where she's willing to embrace even the cross for the sake of love. And if you've been a Christian for a while, that's what we all long for. It's, it's what God is producing within our hearts, mature devotion, which is the spirit of holiness. So let's look at this review. What happened throughout the beginning of chapter 6 is there's this twofold test that happens to the bride. It's really hard. She feels completely silenced from the Lord, like she's not hearing his voice. And she's also had her ministry covering taken from her, so she has no influence anymore. And out of that place, in the dark night of the soul, she receives this deep revelation of who Jesus is. And she shares that revelation with immature believers who are known as the daughters of Jerusalem throughout the song. And that could also be symbolic of even Jerusalem itself and Israel itself and the end times church speaking to Israeli people at the end of the age, which is another cool way to look at this song. But she begins to describe him and his beauty and his love, and he is so moved, he has to break the silence. He has to come through and say, I was watching the whole time as you were being tested, and you never wavered in your love for me. You never questioned me. You just kept pursuing me, which I'm like, Lord, I hope I'm that way when I go through tests. Help me to be that way. And he says to her, look at Roman numeral one, you are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. He says, turn your eyes away from me, right? He's, he's speaking symbolically here. He's not actually saying, turn your eyes for, away from me. He's using poetic language to say, your steady gaze of love through this season of trial has overwhelmed me. You've conquered me. He's saying, you've conquered me with your gaze of love, which is mind-blowing, that language, for God to use that language to his bride. He affirms the maturity of her devotion in verses 5 through 7, using four of her physical attributes. You can read about those there. And then in verse 8, he declares that she is preeminent above all of the angels and all of the divine beings in the heavenly places, which again is mind-blowing. It's like, Lord... I've read about the seraphim and the cherubim. They seem really intense. And you're telling me that I rank higher than them in influence, in authority, in intimacy with you? You're telling me that the beings that are covered in eyes, inside and out, that are staring at you night and day, don't have the same level of intimacy with you available as I do? He's saying, yes, you have as much of me as you want. They don't get all of me. And they're staring at me constantly, crying, holy, holy, holy. But you get all of me. And he compares them to the queens, the concubines, women without number. 
and he says, you're unique, which is the same language she used. She says, you're chief among 10,000. It means you're one in a million. You're one in infinity. You're unique. It's even a similar phrasing to where God says that Jesus was his only begotten son, or that it says that Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son, that, that you're one of a kind. You're a type that is incomparable to anything else that I've created. And then in verse 10, the Holy Spirit leads the great cloud of witnesses, the church throughout the ages, and all of the hosts of heaven in declaring the eternal destiny of the church. And they say four things. They say that she's like the dawn, like the moon, as pure as the sun, and as, arm, as awesome as an army with banners. You can see those interpretations there at letter C. And it's talking about her perseverance on earth now. It's talking about her victory in evangelism and transformation. It's talking about her eternal destiny as the co-heir with Christ and how she's actually the expression of God's government in the earth and she being the church, being us. And at the end of the age, all of the historical church will look down from heaven and look at the church at the end of the age and say, this is the one that we've been praying for. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one that creation has been groaning for since the beginning. And she's going to co-reign with God. So now we come to verse 11. And this is the fruit of the bride walking in this sevenfold revelation of who she is. Right, these seven descriptions of who she is and who her destiny is. This is what happens. What we're going to talk about tonight is the immediate fruit that always takes place when believers walk in their identity as the bride of Christ. When we actually take hold of the revelation of who we are in Christ and who we are as his co-heir, the immediate fruit is what we're going to talk about tonight, which is exciting. It happens immediately. There's no break in the passage. So look at verse 11. I went down to the orchard or the garden of nut trees to see the plants of the valley, to see whether the vine had grown or the pomegranates had bloomed. So what's the first thing that happens when we walk in our identity? We go down. Are you catching this? We descend. We lower ourselves. Right? When you're, when you're looking for Jesus, there's two places you can find him. You can find him in the scriptures, and you can find him at the feet of people, washing their feet. See, the immediate fruit of walking in the revelation of who we are as the bride of Christ is humility. Immediately. We gain revelation of how Christ sees us, and the same meekness that he has, the same lowliness that he has, grabs a hold of our hearts and makes us fall in love with the annoying, immature Christian. <laughs> it makes us love them inexplicably. Look at what happens. Letter A, this is the seventh time that the song mentions the garden or the orchard. Right? And then the first four chapters of the song, the garden is talking about the heart of the Shulamite maiden who's becoming the bride. But at chapter 4, verse 16, she says, my garden, and in the same verse, she calls it his garden. 
She transfers ownership. She gives him the title deed to her heart. And she begins to understand that the Lord's garden, the garden of God, is the heart of the church. It's where he dwells. It's where he loves to be. He's the one who walks among the lampstands. He's with us. We're focused on his garden. And now the bride is going to God's garden to help the new plants that are budding and blooming. Turn the page with me. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, the daughters of Jerusalem, before Jesus breaks the silence, and she describes this beautiful man. And they're like, oh my goodness. Who is your beloved and where has he gone that we may search after him with you? And the thing that she says is here in verse two, my beloved has gone down. (laughs) There it is. He's gone down to his garden. He's gone down to where his people are. If you're looking for Jesus, he's always at the feet of people, washing their feet, serving them. He's always serving his people. Let her be. Before, she told the daughters of Jerusalem where to find him, serving and feeding his people. Now that she's walking in the full revelation of who she is as his bride, she's overcome by his love for the whole church. She's committing to humility and service to the weak and immature ones in God's garden, right? It's the new growth. It's the budding vines. There's no fruit on them yet. There, there actually isn't even any buds on them yet. That's going to happen in chapter 7. But she's looking. She's, she's like, I'm, I went down to the orchard to see if there were any new growth. The plants of the valley, it speaks of this green, rich growth that comes from God ministering to his people. To see what? To see whether the vine had grown or the pomegranates had bloomed. She went down to see the plants of the valley, the lowest place. You guys know that old Laura Hackett song? His river rushes to the lowest place. He loves the low places. He loves the places of humility. You know, he opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. It's like I have this picture sometimes of when a house is on fire, they tell you to get down because the smoke rises and you can actually see. I just have this picture of God in the church and he's down and he's looking for the people that are down there. He's looking for the humble so he can meet them. It's like, I have this weird picture in my mind of like him under the chairs with the, with the lowly, with the humble. He's meeting with them. It's like the little kids that play around underneath the pews at the church. Jesus is like that in my brain. I know. It's kind of weird. But he loves being in the low places. She knows that's where he is, so she goes there, where he can always be found so that she can partner with him in love. See, a lot of people serve because it makes them feel good. But their deep motivation is just to feel good. It's not actually because they're compelled by love to partner with Jesus to meet another person. Right? I love this thing that my dad always tells people. He always, whenever he goes to a new church or he sees people at the door that are new greeters, he always walks up to them and he said, you know, you have the best job in the church. And they look at him like, 
what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I have the only job that I'm qualified to do. I don't know how to do anything else. And he's like, no, you get to greet the presence of God as he walks in the room, in the faces of his people. I'm like, oh, my dad's so cool. But like, it's true. It's true. We start to become overcome by God's love for the simplest people. For the newest believer, the one that has nothing profound to say, the, the one that can't give us any stimulating conversation about scripture, the one that probably believes like God takes people when they die and turns them into angels. Like they're, they're, they probably have all of these weird interpretations of scripture in their mind and Jesus just loves them and he starts to grab our hearts and we just love them. We're like, oh my gosh, I love you. And it makes no sense. Because in my natural mind, I really don't like you. <laughs> and God bypasses our natural mind and gives us love for people that compels us and controls us. Look at Matthew 23. I should read this scripture every day. And do not be called leaders, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I'm telling you guys, right? We think Okay, as soon as I walk in my identity with Christ, as the bride of Christ, I'm going to start raising the dead. I'm going to start walking in signs and wonders. I'm going to start doing crazy prophetic words and words of knowledge. I'm going to know people's street address. But you can do all of that stuff without walking in the fullness of your bridal identity. The thing that's going to happen when you walk in the fullness of your bridal identity as Christ's co-laborer is you become humble and you seek to serve people, especially when nobody else wants to serve them. You look for the kid that's sitting by themselves at the table, and you go, oh, I'm going to go sit with that one. Because you're possessed by God's love for them. Look at letter C, the orchard of nut trees. This does not give you uh, permission to call the church an orchard of nuts. <laughs> it's really tempting, right? Like, oh, we're all a bunch of nuts. That's like somebody told me the church is kind of like the ark. It smells like a bunch of animal dung, but it's the only thing that floats. <laughs> yeah, a little too real. But the orchard of nut trees, this is, this is a new feature. We haven't seen this yet in the song, but this is like, I think of God's garden, and it has all of these different features in it. Like he's so creative. And one of those features is this orchard of walnut trees. And walnut trees are pretty cool. They have a bunch of purposes. The main four that I could find and that other commentators talk about is that they provide shade. They're like really dense trees. So there's refuge there. They provide food, right? Like I've eaten so many walnuts, I couldn't even tell you how many. They produce oil. I didn't know this, but back in biblical times, they actually made soap out of walnut oil. So there's that cleansing aspect to it. And they actually made medicine from the leaves of walnut trees, which I, you immediately think of Revelation 22, the leaves that are the healing of the nations in every season. 
But, ooh, this is the tough part, the seed has to die and be broken before it can provide any of these qualities. And sometimes it's really hard to break a walnut. My dad taught me how to do this thing where you take two of them and you like put them in your hand and you can like use one to break the other one. That's symbolic, right? <laughs> God, God loves to put two believers <laughs> in the palm of his hand and use one to break the other one. Anyway, that just popped into my head right now. So Lord, have mercy and uh, help us to, to break joyfully. The life within the believer is hidden and not immediately observable, right? Nobody would pick up a walnut and chew on it and be like, oh, wow, that tastes really good. Now you have to like break it open to get the fruit that's inside of it. And that, that's what has to happen, right? Look at John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, right? As we embrace the cross, as we lose our lives in humility, we begin to provide these resources to the church. So this orchard of nut trees, like God's trying to produce a bunch of people that will die to themselves in the pursuit of him and provide resource to the rest of the church. The vine, we talk about the vine a lot. You can read Isaiah 5. That's one of the best uh, passages to study about God's vineyard. Look at John 15. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Right? Jesus does a lot of things to tend to the vine. He does a lot of pruning to tend to the vine. He does a lot of watering and nourishing and cherishing to tend to the vine. So the vine you can think of as like the people of God or the church or Jesus and his body. But then the pomegranates here are speaking of like individual believers. And we've seen the pomegranate, pomegranate symbology before. It's usually used, your temples are like a pomegranate, or your cheeks are like a pomegranate. And it's talking about the, our emotions laid bare before God, that he delights in our emotions. He's gripped by the things that make us weep. Did you know that? There's so many examples of where God moved because someone cried because someone had real emotions, right? Even Mary and Martha at Lazarus's grave, Martha said all the right things, all the right doctrinal statements, but Mary just laid at his feet and wept and said a part of the right theology, and it moved him to raise her brother from the dead. There's, there's something about our raw emotions before God that he loves. So this speaks of individual believers and their hearts growing in emotional love. She went down to invest in those that had not yet matured instead of being impatient with him. Help me, Lord. The bride sees the budding virtues in others just as the Lord saw her virtues in seed form. Right? Are you connecting this? In chapter 4, he gave all of these descriptions, the budding virtues, the things that she was growing in. Right? And then in chapter 6, right before this passage, he takes four of them and he said, see, there's the fruit. Right? Remember the eyes, the teeth, the hair. She, she was growing, and now she's grown fully mature. So since she was acknowledged in that way, it's easy for her to acknowledge others that way. Where everybody else sees someone that's annoying, she sees someone that's patient and kind. 
Where everyone else sees someone full of pride, she sees someone that's willing to lay their life down. But it's just a little seed. Like you have to see with the spirit of revelation, with the eyes, the fiery eyes of Jesus, those are the eyes of intense, zealous love. And when we put on his eyes of fire, we begin to see people the same way and we bring the gold out of them. That's what she's doing here. See, the immediate fruit of walking in our identity as the bride of Christ is leaving comfort to care for others, especially the most immature and challenging. I remember when we were in college, we used to pray, God, give us the hardest hearts. I was like, why did we pray that prayer? (laughs) God loves to pull prayers out of us that we would never pray. Like, oh God, help me become patient. Oh no, you prayed the patience prayer. Good luck, you know. Because that means he's going to grab another walnut. (laughs) But those are the prayers that God puts inside of our hearts and they fly out of our mouths and we're like, oh, I know what that means. But it's good because it produces the right fruit. It makes us look like him. Look at Roman numeral three, the next verse. So this is what happens. So she goes to serve and then God's grace hits her with a spirit of prayer for the church, with great love, she becomes overwhelmed by God's love. Look at verse 12. Before I was aware, before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. And that, that the word for noble people is Aminadib. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Letter A, as she works in the valley with the new vines, her soul becomes like the chariots. This is the zeal that partnering with Christ causes her to feel for others. Her soul moved like a chariot. It just jumped out of her. Have you ever been praying for somebody and your soul just goes, and you just have something for them? I'm thinking of like when the gift of faith comes upon you, like you're praying for somebody and then all of a sudden you know that you know that you know that you know they're about to get set free. And your soul just goes, woof. And this grace and faith comes upon you. This is what happens to her. She's serving these immature believers, and then all of a sudden her soul, like a chariot, runs swiftly to them in ministry. See, the best chariots belong to the noble people or the royal family. They were the fastest way to travel, the easiest way to travel with luggage. You know, you're bringing all of that stuff you have from the kingdom. And then this guy, Aminadab, was believed to be a prince, and he was also, a lot of Jewish scholars taught that he was one of Solomon's best chariot drivers. Like if Solomon wanted to go somebody quick, somewhere quick, he got Aminadab. So there's a dual meaning, which is common in the Hebrew, right? So she's, she's compelled by the love of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people but we are well known to God. How many of you like to be well known to God? Man, I want to be well known to God. And I hope that we're also well known in your consciences. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. That's crazy. Like, man, Lord, I want to be controlled, compelled by your love. Like where it bypasses my own reasoning. Where I just love somebody before I, before I was aware And I just, boom, do whatever it was that the Lord puts in my heart to love them. She's no longer offended 
by the immaturity, the pride, the misuse of scripture, the lack of discernment. She just has this tender compassion for the growing vines in his garden. She's beside herself with compassion. Before she was aware, she had new desires and burdens with enthusiasm to serve. She starts ministering. She moves forward to the new growth without any resistance, like a swiftly moving chariot. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Look at letter Z. Zeal for the worldwide body of Christ is essential to the unity in the end times church. So God's going to do this. He's going to start to form end time shepherds who are going to teach and train others to love the global body, not just their prayer room, not just their local church, not just their Bible study. We're, we're about to walk into a season where the global body of Christ is becoming one. And you're like, I don't know about that, Josh. Well, I know it's going to happen because of John 17, verse 21. At the end of the age, this is going to happen because Jesus always gets what he prayed for. And he prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So the greatest evangelistic tool... The greatest witness of the gospel at the end of the age is unity and selfless love for the global body of Christ. And God's raising up shepherds, even now, that are going to teach and train the body to love the worldwide church. They're not going to be like, oh, I think the Catholic church is the Antichrist. That false doctrine is going to get eradicated. The, the things that cause us to live inside our denominational barriers are going to melt like a, hot, a sugar cube in hot water. And we're going to start binding together with people we would have never done ministry with because the love of Christ is going to compel us. It's going to be awesome. The zealous love that she has for the church is no longer hindered by bitterness or offense from the mistreatment she endured in the past. She's going to go back to the vineyards, and we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks out of chapter 7. Look at Roman numeral 4. This is our last verse, and then I'm going to wrap up. Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, so that we may look at you. Why should you look at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two armies, which is the name of a city in the Old Testament? There's just two voices here. We have one voice that's saying, come back, come back, come back, come back, so that we can look at you. And then we have another voice that's reviling against that voice, saying, well, why should you look at her? Why do you long for her? She's not worth anything. So there's two responses to zealous love. There's two responses to people that walk in fervency in their pursuit of Jesus. And it's always those two responses. There's people that will respect and admire that. And there's people that will become offended by it. Remember the watchmen? They got offended and they took away her ministry covering because she was searching for Jesus in the middle of the night. They're like, oh, that's too weird for us. So we're going to remove your influence. And Chances are, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, this has happened to you, where the people that were supposed to tend to you and care for you abused you because your zeal offended them. Now, I'm not talking about when you're full of yourself and you're like, well, I know more than all of you, and uh, I even know more than my senior pastor, but uh, I just try to keep it on the down low so that I don't offend him. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where you fast more 
and you keep fasting, where you show up to prayer meetings, you lead worship in empty rooms, where you pray for the sick and preach the gospel, and your leaders are feeling shown up, but you're not saying anything to them. You're just living your life and pursuing Jesus with all of your heart, and then they get offended, and they start saying things about you behind your back and to your face. That's what I'm talking about. The zeal will always produce that, and they'll call it legalism. Oh, you're just legalistic. No, I'm in love. Not legalistic. I just don't want to do anything that would compromise in any way my love for Christ. And that's going to offend people. Uh, the Shulamite, we finally got to the verse that says Shulamite, right? We've been talking about this lady. You guys have probably been like, well, why, why is she called the Shulamite? This is the verse. It's the only verse. And all that that means, there's this Israel, Israeli city called Shunem. It means that she's from Shunem. But what's cool about that is Solomon and Shunem come from the same root word in Hebrew, which means peace. So this is saying like Solomon and the Shulamite have the same identity. Like they're, they, have, they carry the same name. They carry the same label, the same stamp of approval, right? When Jesus looks at me, he sees me no different than when he looks, when God looks at me, he sees me no different than when he looks at Jesus, who is also God. The father sees me the same. The Shulamite is the same as his son. She carries the peace of God. So there's this first, this first admonition. Come back, come back, come back, come back. They say it four times. This could potentially be the daughters of Jerusalem, young believers who wanted to seek Jesus with her. And they're asking for her to come back from the garden. Hey, you've messed around with those other young believers enough. We need some time. We, we had some great Bible studies, and it's been too long, and, and I just really love the way that you teach, and I really love the way that you lead worship, and I love the way that you love Jesus, and they're longing for that communion, right? Our longing for one another is a pure picture of our longing for the bridegroom. It's, it's normal. Like, we shouldn't be okay when our brothers and sisters in Christ get called somewhere else. We shouldn't be like, well, that's fine. God's, God's a good leader. I trust him. Like, it's supposed to hurt us, you know? Like, it's supposed to be painful to us. Look at what happened when Paul left Ephesus in Acts 20. They all began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. It's like that scene at the end of Lord of the Rings, and Frodo's about to get on the ship, and all of his friends are like, I know this is the best thing that's going to happen, but I don't want you to leave. That's like what happened at Ephesus when Paul left. And that's what's happening here. These daughters of Jerusalem are like, come back. We miss you. We want to commune with you. We want to fellowship with you. We can see Jesus in you. See, sometimes for a young believer, the most real connection they have to Jesus is through a mature believer, right? We need to be careful to not shoo people away from us when they're like, man, I just see Jesus in you and I want to be around you. Yes, we need to tell them like, hey, go get your own oil. Make sure that you're in the prayer room yourself. Make sure that you're reading your Bible. Like you can't just come to me for a prophetic word every single day. You need to actually learn how to hear God's voice. But we need to be patient with these young believers because we're the closest thing to Jesus that they know how to connect with right now. And that's what's happening with these daughters of Jerusalem. They're like, ah, 
I feel disconnected from God because I feel disconnected from you. That's one response. The other response, letter C, why should you look at the Shulamite? And this could be potentially the watchmen who are offended. And then letter D, this is a description of what's happening, right? There's one response, there's the other response, both to the fervency of God. And there's multiple ways that we can look at this. So I did my best to kind of put them in letter D and E. There are those who pursue Jesus with fervency, and there are those who pursue Jesus passively. And it's actually wholeheartedness that's going to be one of the primary areas of contention within the body of Christ and division. You would think it would be like, you know, when I taught middle school, the eighth graders didn't get along with the sixth graders because of their maturity. You would think that would be the case in the church, but that's not the way it's going to be. That's not the way it is historically. It's usually between mature, cold Christians and mature, hot Christians, or mature, cold Christians, and especially immature, hot Christians. They don't like that because it reminds them of how they used to be that way potentially, and they've allowed their love to grow cold. Right, this is going to be one of the primary areas of division in the church. What's interesting, so the word for two armies, it's the name of a city. Look at Genesis 32. As Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And when he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. It's the exact same word that's used here in Song of Solomon. And this is when Jacob is coming back to his inheritance. Right? He's got his two wives. He's coming back to the promised land. And Esau comes up from Edom with 400 men. And Jacob's like, oh no, I think he's going to oppose me. Now he ends up kind of appeasing his brother with a bunch of gifts and manipulation. And they end up being okay. But this is even a prophetic picture of the end of the age, right? You can see an eschatological view happening here, right? Jacob, Israel coming back into their promised land and the Edomite, is coming in opposite. It's happening literally right now, right? Israel is being opposed in Edom. So there's, that's one way that we can look at this. It's two spiritual armies clashing. That's what the dance means, right? It's the dance between two armies. It's an interaction. It's an interface. It's uh, not as friendly as dancing seems, but this is a song, right? So, but this is talking about conflict. These two responses are coming from a spiritual source, Look at letter E. As the bride tends to the new growth in God's vineyard, we see the demonic rising up, unfortunately, oftentimes through other Christians, against those who disciple new believers. This should cause us to take discipleship seriously. Right, this picture, this is what I'm trying to get across, this whole expository breakdown. The immediate fruit of mature devotion is discipleship and humility. It's not preaching on a big stage to 10,000 people. It's meeting one, two, three people with, for coffee once a week. That's the immediate fruit of walking in our identity. You know, even Billy Graham, he said, if, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't do the crusades. I would pick 12 people and I would teach them everything I know and pour my whole life into them. Right? That's what Jesus did. <laughs> God's raising up a people that seek out empty rooms more than they seek out filled stadiums. 
where they're, they're actually chasing the alone time with God more than they're chasing influence. And the funny thing about that is God takes people like that and he puts them on platforms. But they were never chasing the platform. They were never chasing the microphone. They were never chasing influence. They were chasing intimacy with Christ. They were chasing one or two really weird and annoying young believers that just got saved two weeks ago and they're doing a lot of stupid stuff and they're chasing them down and they're calling them and they're having coffee with them and they're having lunch with them and they're inviting them over to their house. It's, it's what God's doing right now at the end of the age. He's going to bring this back. This should cause us to take it seriously. As we meet with immature, prideful, younger believers, spiritually younger, they might be older than you in age, our ministry is not as insignificant as it seems. The enemy sends armies to oppose that ministry. And they're going to look like influential people that you listen to on podcasts. They're going to tell you that's a waste of your time. You're not doing anything with your ministry. All you're doing is leading a prayer room. All you're doing is praying in a room with one other person, two other people. You're leading worship to an empty room. That's insignificant. You're meeting with a young believer for coffee. That's insignificant. But the enemy doesn't view that as insignificant, and neither does God. It's always division is always going to exist between sincere and insincere believers, but it shouldn't exist between mature and immature believers. At the end of the age, will continue to see division provoked by zealous love, even within members of the same families and ministries. You can come up, Abby. So look at this last scripture out of Matthew 10. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What is he saying? He's saying that even the people that are closest to you, when you chase after me, they will become the person that opposes you. Now, does that mean (laughs) now we're going to fight to the death over it? No, he's just saying you need to be prepared for this. It's not the atheist that's going to try to stumble you. It's your brother. It's not Richard Dawkins that's going to cause you to abandon your faith or to cool off a little bit or to stop chasing Jesus so hard. It's your mom or dad. It's your brother or sister. It's your spouse's mom or dad. It's maybe even your spouse. And he's trying to help us to understand that that's normal. It's the rage of this age against the purposes of God. And it comes through those individuals. So let's pray.